Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcasts. Hello, my name is Christian Byrne and today I'm very pleased to be joined by Yvette Nautlomas. Yvette's a pr- Associate Professor in Equine Internal Medicine at Colorado State University and very pleased to be joined um, by her today to discuss the paper Poor Performance in the Horse, Diagnosing the Non-Orthopedic Causes. The paper is currently available to view on EVE Early View. Thanks for joining us today, Yvette. Hi, thank you for having me on this podcast. Um, so we were just talking before we started recording, I think a, a really good place to kick off is, is just to ask what sort of stimulated you as a, as a group to, to decide to put this paper together. That is a great question. It was actually um, Dr. Ellis, uh, um, who was, uh, who is, or uh, no, who was doing a sports medicine residency at Colorado State University um, and was supposed to spend a week on internal medicine with us. Um, and that happened during the COVID time where the caseload was not high. And so we came up, Dr. Contino, who was her sports medicine supervisor, and I came up with the idea to have her write a, um, a paper, essentially, on non-orthopedic causes for poor performance, since that is really something that the um, sports medicine residents um, should, should be familiar with. Um, and that most of those would be things that um, we would have her experience on the equine medicine service. Um, so when Dr. Ellis uh, put that paper together, I was so impressed with the comprehensive aspect of it that I thought, you know what, this would be great to further expand on and um, see if EVE would be interested in, um, because it was such a nice educational format that she presented it with. That's really interesting, and I think uh, it does fill a really great niche. This paper, like uh, um, often is the case, that we sort of pigeonhole things into into certain topics or body systems, and it's not always that we present things in 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 how they necessarily appear to us in a in a clinical context. So I think it does a really great job of spanning across that, which is uh, is why it uh, seemed like a good one to to have on as a as a podcast discussion. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I think a, a useful uh, point for us to just chat about at the beginning is uh, what what we exactly we mean by the term poor performance of a of a horse, um, and particularly in this in this sort of context, what that means to you. Yeah, um, I think that's a great um, n- n- next question um, because it is so difficult to perhaps define. I think in general, um, the big thing is that the performance of the horse is not meeting expectations. Um, It can encompass all kinds of clinical signs. It can be a reluctance to work. It can be actual exercise intolerance, Um, but it can also be um, that that there is a deterioration from previous performance levels um, that experienced trainers or clients have recognized, um, and the horse is just not able to to get to where they know it previously could. Great, yeah. Um, and I think uh, you you go into this in the in the outset of the paper, and obviously this is is primarily focused on non orthopedic um, causes of poor performance. Um, and in the introduction, you discuss that um, orthopedic problems are, are the most common cause of poor performance in horses. Um, just be interested to see what what evidence you know of that that indicates that that is the case um, in the literature. Yeah, well, there have been numerous studies in the past that have shown that musculoskeletal conditions um, were always reported to be the biggest cause for horses not meeting performance expectations. Um, Most commonly, 
um, you know, relatively subtle lamenesses maybe, or bilateral lamenesses, things like that. And mm -hmm. the more recent retrospectives that have gone into causes for poor performance across breeds and disciplines have really shown that both musculoskeletal and respiratory disease um, are common causes for poor performance. And in fact, it's almost 50-50, whereby um, both of these type of body systems are, um, are um, um, causes for horses to not perform as expected. Um, and, and, and further to that, a lot of these retrospectives have now shown that, um, that there's usually more than one problem um, that the horse is suffering from that is leading to poor performance. So it might even be multiple body systems that are affected um, or more than one um, disorder affecting the, same affecting the same body system. For example, horses with EIPH that also have inflammatory airway disease or asthma. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, and I think we'll we'll come back to that uh, uh, sometimes deciphering between uh, you know multiple different diseases in a horse and, and trying to gauge which one's more important. I think we we come back onto that a little bit later on in the um, in our discussion. Um, but you've you've kind of flagged up nicely there about which body systems if we if we're kind of moving our focus away from um, the musculoskeletal system, which ones should be at the sort of forefront of our mind for for most horses. Um, uh, as sort of key things we need to tick off the list of, as uh, um, ruling in or out? Um, yeah. How would you approach that? Yeah. So I think the big number one is going to be orthopedic slash respiratory, because we know that um, most of the conditions are going to be related to those body systems. But then, you know, um, we need to think about the remainder. So cardiovascular disease, um, muscular disease, and neurologic disease, I think are all three important um, body systems to consider because all of those um, or th those three can lead to subtle enough disorders that um, you might not pick up when the horse is at rest or doing light exercise. Um, and sometimes you really need to push the horses a little bit um, for abnormalities or dysfunctions of those systems to come out. And another aspect I think that's useful for us to briefly touch on whilst we're in this area is whether there's um, a different prioritization you would give between body systems for different equestrian disciplines or, or breeds? Yes, I think so. Um, I think there's definitely some breeds or disciplines that are more prone to develop specific um, lesions in, in specific body systems. Um, although, um, again, a lot of it is also quite similar, as, as you can see in the, in the figure that we included in the, in the paper. Um, but mm -hmm. I think examples could be the difference between quarter horses, um, for example, barrel racers that are probably more prone to have respiratory disease as a, as a, a concern for um, poor performance. So um, EIPH is something we see quite a bit in those horses, mm -hmm. um, in addition, of course, to the musculoskeletal things that they could have going on. Um, but for example, if I think about Arabian horses in endurance um, work, uh, maybe those horses are going to be more prone to underlying muscle disease um, if there is concerns for poor performance in those um, in that in those animals. Whereas in warm bloods, um, perhaps they um, are um, going to have more problems with um, underlying axial skeletal pain, distal mm -hmm. neck pain, um, um, and then maybe secondary GI disease um, associated with that. Um, so I think it can certainly vary quite a bit um, 
for breed and discipline and also management wise how the horses are housed and kept um, throughout their um, athletic career. That's great. And you've um, touched on the uh, first figure in the paper, which I think is a really useful thing for people to have a have a peek at if they're listening to the podcast. Uh, um, and uh, uh, it's, it's an interesting figure because I think it does it offers a lot of information and uh, uh, in some aspects seems like uh, you know makes things seem quite straightforward and then other ways the more you look at it sometimes the more you more you think it could become more complicated and uh, I think that's a relatively uh, useful thing to to just have a look at and, and have a think about um, the one thing I think that's useful is just uh, to chat about what your sort of approach is to a, you know, a, you know, like you said, maybe a warm blood or um, a, a case that's presented with relatively non-specific um, uh, signs, maybe where the owner just feels like the horse isn't isn't quite right is often how they put it, or it's just a bit off. Um, and uh, how you sort of work through whether that's sort of system by system or um, uh, often you know some of the the more um encompassing features of your clinical examination might give you a a particular uh, system to focus on initially so i just wondered how you sort of prioritize which systems you you look at absolutely um i, I think that's a, a great um introduction to a very complicated problem because those non-specific um reasons for poor performance often show up as a horse with a relatively normal physical exam um, for, for my particular practice, it really kind of depends on um, who the horse is being brought in by, mm -hmm. um, because, you know, we are at a, a referral center. So many of the horses that we get in um, have been looked at by others beforehand. Um, sometimes they're not, though. Um, and so it depends on if it's a trainer or a or the client who brings the horse in. Sometimes both of them come in. Um, sometimes they've had extensive evaluations already been performed uh, by um, other either sports medicine people or general uh, practitioners. Um, sometimes they come in with a lot of information and, and radiographs, etc. And sometimes they really come in with nothing. When they come and see me, um, there is often some concern for neurologic disease. Um, so I often will start with a very good thor thorough Neural, um, physical exam followed by a thorough neurologic, uh, neurological examination. Um, mm -hmm. And including in that, I also um, try to give the horse a very thorough palpation to detect any um, indications of pain or movement restriction um, to then maybe go back to um, pain slash musculoskeletal disease or axial spine conditions that might be underlying um, poor performance. Um, Oftentimes, if we um, have the horse on the lunge line or while we're working the horse, um, we might detect more um, signs that are related to, for example, the respiratory tract. If the horse is either uh, being very more tachypnic than we would expect to see um, after the amount of exercise we've made the horse do. Mm -hmm. um, or sometimes they will overtly start coughing, which will then, you know, um, uh, put your um, examinations back to the respiratory tract. Yeah, that's great. I think, uh, like you said, it's a difficult uh, um, topic to sort of cover in a generic thing, and maybe sometimes actually it is it is easier to to focus on a specific case, like you said, and particularly if they give you a little hint that there's a something you need to look at a little bit more closely, uh, and then that can that can be very helpful. Um, I think sometimes uh, another. Uh, 
temptation uh, certainly in practice i think is to is to focus on the sort of low hanging fruit uh, diseases or tests where it's you know it's very easy to perform a sort of straightforward test that can rule something in or out um in this type of case um and particularly ones with vague signs where you kind of you know don't have a clear uh, um initial path to go down um, i wonder what your thoughts are about that so i think probably a one that comes to mind a lot of the time for for a horse that's not that's not quite right in its ridden work is potentially you know gastroscopy is often uh, something that people might do quite quite readily um, and i wonder how you um uh you know whether that's an approach that you sometimes take um uh, in in cases where you where you're finding it difficult to to find a, an initial avenue to pursue um, yeah, um, I think when it comes to gastroscopies and looking for gastric ulcers, um, that can be a very important aspect of um, getting the horse uh, to feel better if there are in fact gastric ulcers. Um, but I make a very big point of um, teaching my students and residents that if a horse has gastric ulcers, there's a reason that they have gastric ulcers. And one should not just say, okay, I have the answer, it's gastric ulcers and we're going to treat the horse for that problem but we need to find out why the horse has gastric ulcers mm -hmm. and deal with that problem. Um, and that might be some subtle pain. Again, something that is um, causing the horse enough stress in its athletic life to develop gastric ulcers um, because it's not comfortable um, with something in its management, be it there's some underlying pain um, or there's some else, something else that the horse um, is not happy about. With regards to other, you know, you mentioned low hanging fruit. I actually was thinking uh, more in the line of um, doing again, a very, very good physical examination. And then if you do have a horse that has an arrhythmia, um, you can go straight to an ECG and further investigate that as far as, um, you know, not putting the horse through the whole mill of tests that are available, mm. um, but really focusing on um, the body system that you can detect. And I'm sometimes surprised with um, um, the, um, the, uh, the fact that, um, especially I think our students um, who sometimes do not pick up on arrhythmias um, that are sometimes pretty obvious, they're not always, you know, atrial fibrillation by any means. Mm. Um, but I think it's important for uh, people to spend their time ausculting the horse and doing more than, you know, getting the heart rate. Um, but really having a good li listen um, and ideally that happens before and after exercise in these type of cases. Um, furthermore, for this particular question, I think it's important to make a point that if you can look for certain conditions, that doesn't necessarily mean you should. Um, mm. Same with gastroscopies. Um, we can do that, but we, we might not um, need to be doing that if there are no clinical signs. Um, so for um, for me, you know, we, we, we see a lot of horses that um, clients want to have tested for EPM, equine protozoal myeloencephalitis, or Lyme disease. Mm -hmm. um, and the problem is always, what do you do if those test results come back positive in a horse with no clinical signs? Um, so I think I, I make an effort of teaching students that for, first and foremost, horses need to have histories or clinical signs of diseases that you then can start testing for. Um, but it becomes very dangerous to start applying diagnostics and doing things in horses without a clear indication or reason to do so. 
Yeah, I think that's uh, a really a few really uh, pertinent points to to highlight and and just demonstrate the sort of uh, tricky area that this that this deals with. And uh, I think even just mentioning there about uh, sort of cardiac auscultation and things and and how that fits with the the pitch. You know, I think certainly there's a uh, you know, a reasonable number of cases where they, particularly if the client presents it with a suspicion of of lameness and uh, uh, and that being the cause of, of poor performance, it, you, you can get quite far down the track in those um, investigations before you might put a stethoscope on the horse and listen to uh, to its heart. So I think sometimes, uh, certainly for me, that's a you know a useful reminder just to have in the back of your head that maybe before you get too uh, in depth into something that just uh, you know, not forgetting to to do your initial uh, clinical exam. You know, even if even if there is a a a, a, an or something there that that's the primary sort of presentation for investigation. Just not forgetting those um, quick checks, just to make sure you're not missing something uh, uh, major that you're going to find later on after a lot of hard work. Yeah, yeah. Um, the uh, I think another sort of topic that's that's useful uh, to talk about uh, along those lines is is obviously some of the diagnostic tests actually uh, can give a lot so i guess they sort of high yield tests that can tell us a lot about a body system quite quickly so um, one that sort of springs to mind from that point of view potentially is uh, respiratory tract endoscopy where actually you can potentially visualize a lot of upper respiratory tract uh, um, diseases and also some information about the lower respiratory tract. So I thought that was a, a, an interesting area for us to chat about. So the case you mentioned earlier, potentially one that's you know you've you've seen exercising on the lunge and it's coughed a few times. Um, whether you know a sort of high yield test like a, an endoscopy would be where you would go next with that, or whether um, uh, you know uh, a tracheal wash or a, a BAL would be your next step, or where you know how you would approach that that situation yeah those are great cases to um to deal with um because i think a lot of um what that also brings in is client um, expectations and costs and what people are willing to do um so i will often um go through all the possibilities that we have um to work on those horses mm-hmm. and um often recommend doing things here that we can that might be more difficult to do in the field Um, So, for example, um, getting a BAL is something that um, is an easy procedure to do, but reading the actual sample is is more difficult to do. Mm -hmm. Um, So that might be something that um, I would recommend doing in a horse that, for example, coughs on the lunge line um, or has a history of, you know, coughing at the onset of exercise and then maybe doing okay afterwards um, or horses that um, are just more to kipnic than um, they should based on their um, level of conditioning, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, um, in addition to that, though, you bring up the um, um, the um, endoscopy, and that is another thing that I find very, very helpful to do. Um, and the question is always: Do we scope with a short scope or do we scope with a long scope? Um, <laughs> because the short one one meter or one point four meter scope can give us a lot of information on the upper respiratory tract. Um, and you can also have a look in the trachea with, with that scope, but it's often too short to really get into the bronchi, um, let mm-hmm. alone get um, samples from deeper in the airways. Um, but there is a price tag between the short scope and the long scope. Um, so that's another discussion to have with the client to find out um, what they are willing to do. And also, um, it, it, you know, we as clinicians need to recommend maybe something to start with versus something that they might want to come back for later, depending on the results of the 
first tests we do. Um, for example, when it comes to BALs, you can also collect those blind with um, just a um, BAL collection tube rather than through the scope. So you might scope with a short scope and then get a BAL done with a, with a blind um, tube. Yeah, that, and I think whilst we're on that sort of uh, topic, obviously the the uh, paper itself goes into uh, some detail about uh, uh, specific conditions, like we mentioned, sort of asthma and uh, uh, some of the diagnostics for that, and has some really nice figures um, dem demonstrating some cytology from uh, BAL fluid, um, and uh, I guess that's leads us to another similar topic sometimes we have a bit of a decision to make about relatively similar tests um like a, a tracheal wash or a or a bal uh, is a is a sort of um a, a simple one to to consider so do you uh tend to change that slightly between cases or do you uh, um you know tend to use a bal in in the majority of cases as your sort of standard and, and just change that if uh, if there's a particular indication to do that that's a great question, and um, there's been some really nice um, recent publications that show that you can get very good results from tracheal washes um, compared to BALs. Um, so it really uh, nowadays um, doesn't make a very big difference whether you get one or the other sample, um, which is, I think, very nice for clinicians who might have more difficulties um, getting BALs or getting BALs read out. Um, mm -hmm. So I think a lot of... Um, these things where do you do one test or the other um, is depending on, depending on the client the, the clinician um, and also the client and the costs associated with those sample collections and sample analyses uh, methods. Um, the, um, the, the other thing to think about is any type of complications that might arise from, um, from one procedure versus the other. So what kind of risks uh, you put the horse at. Mm -hmm. um, you know, tracheal washes, you can now get through the scopes or transendoscopic, which is a nice, relatively non-invasive way to get those versus having to get them um, transtracheal, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and there's also been um, some reports of um, adverse effects from BAL collections, which seems another relatively non-invasive procedure. But, you know, when you read that horses can actually die from that procedure, then it becomes something to to maybe think about um, because you wouldn't want to have that happen to your case, um, obviously. Um, so in the end, I think it really depends on um, the, the, the scenario that you have in front of you and which test makes most sense to do for that particular client and, and horse. Great. That's really helpful. Um... And uh, as I said, I think the, the sort of uh, article itself gives a, a really uh, useful overview of a lot of those um, conditions, like we said, in the sort of context of, of how that fits in this, uh, in uh, you know, this situation of, of investigating poor performance. Um, one thing I thought would be useful to um, talk about whilst we're, um, you know, having a discussion is whether there's any um, body systems, um, and this might be sort of geographic um, uh, and, and differ slightly between places, but whether there's any systems that you think that we under investigate or under diagnose, whether that is, uh, um, you know, uh, influenced by clients or, or by, you know, what, what clinicians are more comfortable with or what, what we're more, um, more readily accessible tests as well. Yeah, I think that is a great question um, because I think that um, there are certain some conditions and aspects of horse welfare that we do not um, pay enough attention to, I think. 
Um, number one is under conditioning. Um, there are horses, and maybe that's more so in the States than in Europe, but there are certain horses, certainly horses um, that we see that are not conditioned enough to the um, level of exercise that people desire to uh, for them to be, be at. So mm -hmm. um, under conditioning is a big thing that I think we need to recognize and uh, make sure that trainers and clients are aware of. Um, and then another one um, that I think is um, the sleep. So horses need to be able to sleep for a number of hours a day. Um, and there are some situations where sleep deprivation or sleep um, uh, disturbances um, are very likely to be a problem for that particular animal and contribute to it, its um, poor performance. And I think this is something that might be relevant too for horses that move from one place to another or are sold. Um, so undergo some type of a change in their management. Mm -hmm. um, and um, um, overall, um, these things can affect their um, happiness. And um, I believe that will contribute to their performance also. Um, I think we know, or we are learning more and more about axial spine conditions, rider's tack, muscle diseases, even nutrition, I think is something that should be um, um, on the forefront of our focus. And we are, I think, learning more and more about that. Um, but I think um, under conditioning, sleep system, and um, the importance of management um, to creating a happy horse are things that we just don't know enough about to you know, measure and um, survey the horse about. Yeah, those are, I think, really great, really great points to highlight. And I think um, certainly some of those things are, are, are not as easy for us to assess potentially as well. Like you said, if you're a, a referral setting, you don't necessarily get to see the setting the horse is managed in or um, some aspects of that. It re really relies a lot on the, the history that you're taking from the clients and things I think is uh, is, a, is a really interesting uh, uh, feature to consider for a lot of those. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Having that collaboration between um, between trainers and clients who actually see the horse and barn managers um, mm -hmm. and veterinarians is important, and it's very important for us um, in these um, other centers that we indeed don't see the horse in its natural setting. Um, so having those open communications and discussions is is really critical to um, being a team to get that horse the support it's need it needs. Um, and whilst we're just going through some uh, uh, more specifics of, uh, of areas of, of interest, I think um, one we sort of touched on earlier was, was uh, uh, gastric ulceration. And um, I think for clients, sort of gastric or uh, gastrointestinal disease is, is, is one that often comes to their mind. Um, uh, and um, certainly in the, in the article, um, you, uh, you present really nicely some uh, information about um, uh, equine gastric ulcer syndrome. Um, I just wondered what your um, experience was with other um, sort of gastrointestinal causes of poor performance and whether, again, that might be slightly different geographically or um, uh, between different disciplines. But um, certainly I think clients often have a, you know, a concern potentially if the horse is, is sensitive around palpation of its abdomen things that that's a, an indicator of uh, potentially of abdominal pain um, and th that sort of draws their attention to to the gastrointestinal system but sometimes it's not as easy for us to to investigate that system uh, in some circumstances yeah that's a very good point it's very very difficult for us to really 
get an get a good assessment of the um, function or dysfunction of especially the hindgut in the in, in is what you probably are referring to more um, since we kind of discussed gast gastric ulcers. Yeah. So in the, in those horses, I think it's um, probably still relevant to do a gastroscopy because sometimes horses with um, possible hindgut signs, so kind of the sensitivity around the flank on palpation, or they don't like being groomed anymore, um, they might still ha also have gastric ulcers, um, and that can point you to or um, or um, give you more indication that there is indeed a GI effect um, in this horse. Um, but I I do I do really believe that um, in most cases, these are secondary to something else that is going on for that particular animal. Um, and it might be management related, but it might also be pain related or um, something else in the horses um, and the way the horse is um, interacting with the world that's, that's made it develop problems in the GI tract. Um, as far as diagnosing um, or managing these um, more hindgut related um, problems um, is, is very difficult. And I think it's dependent on um, the case and the client. And if they're, um, you know, for example, able to give the horse some rest um, mm -hmm. or if they're able to um, put in resources to find out if there is indeed anything else um, that could be underlying the development of GI disease. That's great. Um... I think another sort of interesting point for us to, to touch on, and again, you sort of highlighted that, that uh, obviously there's areas where um, uh, we're getting a lot of new research uh, that's that's maybe increasing our um, understanding of, of certain aspects of body systems or certain disease processes. So is there any of those that you think are worth highlighting? So potentially areas where, um, you know, our understanding has been updated and, uh, and, and that might influence uh, um, our ability to investigate or, or diagnose uh, specific conditions? Yes, I think there are two body systems that have really, um, in which, you know, recent work um, of, of the last number of years has really um, allowed us to be much more specific and helpful towards owners with um, relevant conditions. Number one is the upper airway disorders that we see mm -hmm. um, and the ability for us to use dynamic endoscopy to really um, evaluate what happens in the upper airway as the horse moves and as head position is changed, I think mm -hmm. has um, been um, groundbreaking towards um, allowing us to um, understand why horses are struggling um, uh, during some of these exercises. Um, so I think that is definitely one of them. And then the other um, body system I, I would highlight is uh, the muscle muscle system and muscle diseases. The work that Dr. Valberg has been doing over the past years um, has been um, so instrumental in our understanding of um, diseases related to the muscles um, and how those can affect um, horses' performance, um, either um, by overtly having them, um, you know, tie up and develop mm. rhabdomyolysis, but also especially for those more subtle conditions, um, such as the myofibular my myopathies that are recognized in Arabians now um, that can lead to more subtle, um, poor performance. Yeah, I think that's that's great. And uh, uh, certainly from, from my perspective, the, the article really goes through those really nicely. I think uh, um, if you're if you're not sort of coming across those regularly in uh, in uh, your clinical practice, I think sometimes they can they can 
become a bit of a uh, a model uh, and and uh, uh, you know overlap a little bit in your memory. So I think it's useful to to just remind uh, ourselves of of how those fit in. And like you said, particularly as uh, our in- knowledge of them is is increasing, that actually. Uh, uh, you know, it's a kind of a, a dynamic area, and uh, uh, certainly I found that really helpful in the article that it, that it ran through those. Thank you. Uh, are there any other areas along those lines where you think are, uh, um, uh, you know, we need to have more research in particular, and uh, uh, whether that's for diagnostics or for for treatment? Is there any sort of body systems where you think we're we're sort of lagging behind a little bit? Yeah, I think some of the, those I think um, I mentioned uh, um, already a little bit. So the areas of sleep, um, welfare, nutrition, I think those are all um, areas that we um, know, you know, know their existence of. And mm. um, we, but we there is still room to improve um, um, how to use best um, things to get what we need and what the horses need. Um, and then uh, additionally, um, CSU is um, starting to um, put a lot more resources into the vertebral column. So both the neck and the back. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, we're trying to um, become more knowledgeable, both in diagnosing um, and also managing um, conditions and pain related to the vertebral column. So I, I think those are um, the biggest areas where I think we still need to learn a lot. Um, and where I think the horses need us um, much more still um, than we what we are able to provide at the moment. Great, yeah, I think those are those all uh, do sound like interesting areas that uh, uh, that we can explore further. Um, just as we sort of um, move on from things, uh, one. T- area we touched on briefly was horses where um, and certainly not an uncommon situation to have a horse where we potentially find several um, disease processes um, and and then the sort of next challenge we sometimes encounter is teasing out which of those is um, uh, which or both of those potentially if there's if there's two or or, or even more um, is important for that case so I just wondered if you have any sort of thoughts or um, uh, uh, ways that you go about doing that um, um, in your practice? Yeah, and I think that the two um, biggest um, things that I think I see from my perspective are horses that have um, e- um, equine gastric ulcer syndrome um, and some underlying lameness or vertebral column uh, condition, mm-hmm. um, and those horses that have asthma and um, EIPH. Um, so for the horses that, are, um, that we diagnose ulcers in but are also um, finding that they are uncomfortable or have some restricted movement in, of their axial spine. Um, I like to work on those together with our equine surgeons or equine sports medicine clinicians. Um, and my goal then is to treat the gastric ulcers and at least get that level of comfort back to the horse um, in conjunction with the other clinicians dealing with any type of pain that could have been the source for this horse's um, development of um, GI disease. Um, when it comes to the horses with um, EIPH, for example, um, and you do your BAL and you find um, evidence of EIPH in the form of hemosiderin and macrophages or even overt erythrocytes, um, but also that elevated um, percentage of neutrophils or mast cells or, or um, cells like that, um, the question is always, well, what came first? Mm-hmm. You know, is it the horse that is a um, bleeder that has now developed secondary inflammatory airway disease because of the fact that blood is residing in the airways, 
Or is it the other way around where it's a horse that has some asthma and has some restrictions in um, getting enough oxygen into the bloodstream and is therefore putting in that extra respiratory effort and developing EIPH? Um, and that is, I think, something that we don't fully understand yet. Um, but in those type of horses, I think um, what our goal then is is going to be to try to reduce that inflama infl inflammation component um, and see if the horse um, um, improves with with that type of treatment. That's great. And I think uh, uh, it sort of wraps things up really nicely in terms of uh, uh, you know, getting to the ultimate point that in certainly in some of the cases, I think uh, um, often we, we don't really know until we start uh, start treatment based on the initial investigations and, and assess how the horse responds, I guess, is uh, uh, is, a, is an important bit of feedback for, for a lot of cases and, and, and sometimes can help us tease that bit of information out. Yeah, that's actually, that's a really good point. Um, indeed, is that sometimes you are stuck in a situation in which you need you, you need to treat the horse um, and see if whatever it is that is bothering the horse improves. And in, in that respect, sometimes we work with um, phenylbutazone and put, you know, phenylbutazone trials where we put the horse on um, phenylbutazone for five or seven days and see mm -hmm. if the horse responds. Um, and if so, then that could indeed imply that there is some, you know, subtle area of pain um, that is now responding to your treatment. Um, that you then probably need to go look for, further for. That's great. Um... Uh, I think that's I think that's been a really interesting discussion to to go alongside the article. Uh, um, as we said, the the um, the content of the articles uh, um, covers a, a lot of uh, um, the the topics we've discussed, and obviously a bit more detail about uh, um, specific conditions. But I think uh, um, hopefully this sort of sits alongside it nicely in terms of how those uh, interplay with one another. So um, really grateful to you for your for your time with uh, your discussion on that today, Yvette. Thank you so much, Christian, for having me on the podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Education podcast. More on the subjects discussed in this podcast can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash e.